Welcome back, everybody. Lesson number three. How about that? We are on a roll. Some of you are wondering, Jones, when are you going to start getting these lessons out to us? Here they are, people. Here they are. I've got a, a good pour over that I'm partaking in right now. I hope you're partaking in a yummy pour over coffee yourself. Lesson three. We're going to read the first couple verses of the book of Job. I said last time that we won't be reading every single verse in the book of Job. It's a really long book. And so I don't think that's necessary for us to accomplish the objective of getting the big picture of what the book of Job is. I do think we need to spend some more time than maybe what is normal in the dialogue part which is 90% of the book of Job, the dialogue of Job and his friends. So we will. We'll get there. But today, I just want to start with how the book opens. I've been thinking a little bit about how a movie begins and how intentional the beginning of a movie can be, or maybe a book, right? And sometimes a movie will give you the ending first, and then it'll backtrack and it will unpack how the events unfold to that end. And then you see that end, of course, happen again, and you have a full picture. There's a connection from the beginning to the end. And this is true in books of the Bible as well. You know, uh, the book of Ruth is actually a great example of this. Because the book of Ruth begins by saying it was in the time when the judges ruled. And if you think about the last verse of the book of Judges, it says there's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet the book of Ruth ends by saying... Uh, that Ruth and Boaz have a kid, who has a kid, who has a kid, and then there's this genealogy for King David. Obviously, the beginning of the book, we're in the days of the judges, Israel has no king, ends, the book of Ruth ends with the king of the Old Testament, King David. Clearly, there's uh, intentionality in that literary structure. The book of Job has something similar to it. So the beginning of the book of Job matches and parallels the ending of the book of Job. And we'll come back to that later. I don't want to spend time talking about the ending of the book of Job. But I just want to recognize that when a, an author is putting together their, their book, or, or when that book of the Bible is being put together or edited, or however the process went down for some of these books. A lot of thought went into the structure of it. And so what is said at the beginning is not random. It's actually a really big point. And for the book of Job, it's going to provide the context for us considering what this book is all about. So 
Let's just take a look at the first five verses. We're going to learn about who Job is. So let me just read it first, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to identify some things about Job. So here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz, of Uz, um, probably southeast of Palestine, somewhere in the Arabian desert. So it only occurs three times in the Bible, this word. So there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day. And they would send word and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of fasting had completed their cycle, sorry, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send word to them and consecrate them, getting up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job did so continually. There you go. I mean, my goodness, this guy is unreal. Which actually is really interesting way to put it. So what do we learn about Job? Let's backtrack a little bit. First off, Let's just talk about his name. Job, his name means hated. Hated. Wasn't that interesting as we think through? Now, there are some people that believe the names in the Bible function in a prophetic manner so that people were named something because God knew how their life was going to relate to their name. Their names are prophetic. So other people who think um, that names are not reflective of the actual historical person, that their name was made up doesn't necessarily mean the person didn't exist. 
It's just that their names reflect something about the story. So now as to how many people in the Bible, one might think this relates to, um, I, I don't think one has to take that view for every name in the book of the Bible. There's very clear evidence, uh, archeological evidence for people like David. So there's actually been artifacts found um, that there was a king in Jerusalem named David. They found a, it's the basalt stele, and it says House of David on it. So it's a big deal. So Job's name means hated. I'll leave you to figure out where you're at with that. Was that really his name? Uh, or is this a representative of something that's going on with, within this book? Job, we're told, is a man that is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Ooh, that, that should ring a bell, guys. Does that ring a bell from the last lesson? We're in the first verse, and I'm told that Job is blameless, upright, he fears God, and turns away from evil. That's the exact stuff I was talking about in the previous lesson. This is a book about wisdom. Remember, fearing God is one's orientation to God, and that's the foundation of wisdom. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom, we read in, in the Proverbs. And that's Job. It's exactly what he does. He has 10 kids. Notice that perfect symmetry, 10, is a symbolic number of completion in the Bible. Seven sons, three daughters. And this dude is the Elon Musk of the ancient world. We're talking some serious Bitcoins, okay? He is as wealthy as one can get. Notice the interesting numbers, however. He has 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Add them up. So we've got 10,000. We've got 1,100. Okay? And very many servants. So pause. In verse 1, I'm told about his orientation to God. Job fears God. He's blameless. He's upright. The guy turns away from evil. So I'm not going to expect him to have a sinful posture towards God for the rest of the book. Um, we will be told later on, at the end of chapter 1, in this Job never sinned. And I think sometimes that verse, along with this first verse, gets stuck in our brain 
And we think that that is who Job is the entire book. I think this is partly due to the fact that people just don't spend time reading 90% of the book of Job because it's just really hard to read. Uh, You know, some of us can read Shakespeare and you can just keep going. That's great. But, uh, you know, some of you, I don't know, maybe a lot of you, even struggle to get through one of my podcasts. You're like, come on, Jones, wrap this up, buddy. Maybe I'm going to put this on two speed, you know? It's all good. The grace. It's all, you know, you, you do you people. But I don't think that's the proper way to think about Job throughout the book. So, but I am told right now, this is who Job is. What's going to be significant is that we're told not only about Job's relationship to God, we're also going to be told how wealthy Job is. And that's going to be a big deal moving forward. This isn't just random information we're being told. We're being told things so that the ancient reader, when they read this, will say, ah, I know what's going on here. I know what idea is being challenged in the book of Job. Because that's what's happening. A, an idea, um, a philosophy, you could even call it a theology of whenever the book of Job is written, an idea is being challenged. So I'm told that the dude is crazy wealthy. He is the Elon Musk of this time period. And he's also the, I'm trying to think, you know, for for lack of a better uh, individual, because I can't think of a dude right now. He's the Mother Teresa of this time period as well. He is as squeaky clean as it gets. And he's got tons of money. Okay? So that actually is a super big deal. And we don't want to fly past that and think, I'm just hearing random info. It's not random info. Like I said, these descriptions of his wealth will show up at the end of the book. And we'll talk about it. But it is exactly double at the end of the book. So I need to really hold on to this until the end. And I need to think through why am I being told this? What else? The culmination of the descriptions of Job is that he is the greatest of all the men in the East. Woo! I mean... Good for you, buddy. That's fantastic. So clearly, things are going well for Job, and one would assume things will continue to go well for Job. And we know, of course, that's not the case. So what else am I told? I'm told that when his sons had a feast, And the sisters would come 
Job would even go out of his way to offer burnt offerings for his kids. So he's thinking, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Do please remember that line. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he is going to offer sacrifices and pray for his kids in case they've sinned. And the text says, Job did so continually. This is really amazing. This guy is unbelievable. He's almost too good to be true. It, it is such an amazing description of a guy, and it really sets us up to consider what's going to happen next. So I don't think one can overemphasize the greatness of these descriptions. They're supposed to be. So we're supposed to get this incredible picture of this guy. There's almost a comical level to Job's greatness as we see it. Because the downfall is going to be so great and so fast we need to consider, why was I told this from the beginning? How does this relate to what's about to happen in verse 6, when, when the sons of God show up and the Satan is among them and all of the drama that goes on? We have to remember Job's greatness, Job's blamelessness. He is a man who fears God and turns away evil, and he wants that for his kids because he doesn't want them cursing God in their hearts. Will this posture from Job remain? Well, will his possessions remain? We know the answer to that. Will his sons and daughters remain? We know the answer to that. So now I want to ask, will his fearing God remain? Will his blamelessness remain? And I think we need to investigate further to see what's going to go down. So for now, we have looked at five verses, and we've just slowed down and thought about the descriptions of Job. And we're going to see how those are going to become very important in the events that transpire, of course, but maybe even more so in the dialogues that he's going to have with his friends. Because that, that dialogue he has with his friends is going to show their belief system in terms of their understanding of not only who God is, but when they relate to God in a certain way, then they should expect certain things in return. And so that's, that's enough. I don't want to say too much, but that's enough to go on with for now.